We are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the fourth and final webinar in our series this month that has looked at creating student upstanders in today's world. If you are watching this, we know you're going to enjoy it and we encourage you to share it with your networks. My name is Mary Hendra. I'm the Associate Program Director for Facing History and Ourselves here in Los Angeles and for our organizational innovation. And I'm thrilled to be your host one last time as we do our webinars this month. Throughout this series with Connected Learning TV, we've been looking at the steps and strategies that can help students develop their sense of voice and their sense of agency in the world today. We started with thinking about the classroom and how do we create that safe and reflective classroom community that encourages students to develop that voice and to start to feel comfortable talking about challenging issues. We looked at how content, um, really some tough content, but really rich content, such as the Holocaust and human behavior or To Kill a Mockingbird, can help students grapple with the challenging issues of our time see models of what it means to stand up in a time of difficulty, in a time even of collective violence. And we today get the fun part of looking at, so how does this you know, look today? What happens as students emerge from these case studies and are so motivated to want to do something that they start becoming upstanders in today's world? I am thrilled today to be joined by this amazing range of guests. Um, practitioners who are classroom teachers who have taken time out during their day um, with students to be able to, to be with us on this webinar today, as well as staff from Facing History and ourselves in both Southern and Northern California, um, and Andrew Slack, who's joining us from the East Coast, I believe, today, but has a lot to share on this topic of what it means to be an upstander today in the world digitally as well as physically. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to a great conversation around civic engagement. Before we get started, a few logistics. Um, to those who are watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions. You can do that right on the Q&A feature within the video player on the Connected Learning TV, um, or you can join the conversation via Twitter. Please use the hashtags Connected Learning and Upstander. And that way we'll see your comments and questions and be able to bring them into our conversation. This webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Project's EducatorInnovator.org and we're thrilled to have their participation as well. Before we begin, I'd like to give everyone the chance to introduce themselves um, very briefly and why they're here with us today for this topic about upstanders in a digital and physical world. I'm going to start right here with Emily. Hi, uh, I'm Emily Weisberg. I'm a program associate with Facing History here in the Los Angeles office, um, and I work primarily with our Jewish education program. Um, I think this topic is so interesting, and, and I love to look at different ways that we can help our students um, feel a sense of agency and think about different ways that they can actively get involved, perhaps in ways they haven't thought of before. Thank you. And staying in Southern California, John, would you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is uh, Jonathan Lego. I am the 12th grade ethnic studies teacher at uh, Animo Jackie Robinson High School. Um, and a big part of my course really focuses on uh, this idea of resistance and creating change in the community. Um, and that's uh, further kind of backed up by uh, our social, uh, senior social action projects that we do every year as well. Thank you. Um, 
Andrew, could you go ahead and share with us your background and what brings you to this conversation? Sure. My name is Andrew Slack. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to make this succinct. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was a I was a sketch comedian for a long time, being able to pull in thousands of college students to a show, uh, and was uh, annoyed by and disillusioned by the fact that uh, a, a college campus would be lucky to get five people to a human rights meeting or to an environmental meeting. So the question was about how do we make uh, social change and civic engagement as popular as entertainment and stories. So with that question, I uh, created and co-founded the Harry Potter Alliance and would love to talk more about that as well as uh, uh, the extension of the Harry Potter Alliance um, for me, which is Imagine Better, which I'm now directing out of a place called Civic Hall in New York City. Thank you. Uh, let's come back to California Coast, um, Milton. Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is uh, Milton Reynolds, and I'm a senior program associate with Facing History and Ourselves in the San Francisco Bay Area office. Uh, I'm one of the co-conspirators, along with Aaron De Silva and Trevor Gardner, of the San Francisco Bay Area Student Leadership Group. Um, for me, sort of civic engagement is not a process or an event, but rather a way of living, and I think sort of germane to that um, in my own sort of life. Outside of Facing History, I'm also the board chair of Literacy for Environmental Justice, and I also sit on the board of Paul K. Longmore Institute for Disability Studies at San Francisco State. So for me, it really is about engaging and doing, um, and looking forward to being in conversation with you all. Thank you. And Erin? Hi, um, I'm Erin DeSilva from Notre Dame High School, and I teach a global studies class to freshmen, which looks at global issues, and a contemporary social issues class to um, seniors. And in both those classes, it's really clear that students are passionate and engaged and aware of what's going on in the world around them. But then they say, "Now what?" And that's and that's what I try to do is give them some tools for that. And I work with Milton to do that with a special group of students that we'll talk about later. Awesome, thank you. And I, I want us to dive right in by really thinking about this. What concretely does it look like for students to be upstanders? And Aaron uh, and John, I'm hoping that the two of you can start us off. Maybe Aaron first. What does it look like for a student to be an upstander? Um, well, I think that a student who's an upstander actually cares about the world around them that they don't just wake up, get their Starbucks, walk around, <laughs> um, check their phones, but they're actually using all of their tools around them to engage in what's happening. Um, so when students come in and say, did you hear what happened last night? What do we need to do about it? Um, that's the first step, is that they just care about the world. And then they ask the question, what do we do? How can I actually um, engage? How can I make this better? Um, and that's I think what students do in the classroom, but they're doing it outside of the classroom too. And so um, I, I'm hoping that that just becomes a movement for them. Great. John, what would you add? Um, you know, just building off of Aaron, um, when I think about being an upstander, I think about um, one of my professors in college, uh, Professor George Lipsitz, and he talks about having this what we call presence of mind, right? And it's this idea of constantly being critical constantly um, engaging yourself in, in the world, like Aaron said, and what's happening. Um, you know, not accepting hegemony, right, that, this dominant narrative, and uh, just questioning that, uh, taking part in, in dialogue, in, in conversations that, uh, about things that directly and, or indirectly affect you. Um, and, you know, with that, I think moving forward, even just being 
able to make informed decisions. Um, informed decisions about things that are, will affect your life, your community, your family, um, in either a positive or negative way, but again, just taking part in that process. Thank you. Emily, what do you see? Um, I mean, to sort of build off of what Aaron and Jonathan said, I think it's also about helping our students see that both big and small acts um, contribute to being an upstander, so it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a big act of um, social activism, but could actually be the way that you treat somebody who sits next to you in class, or the way that you treat your family, or the way that you treat your friends, so that um, small acts have large impact. I think that's really important for our students to hear, so that being an upstander looks lots of different ways. Um, it's not one specific way, so that a student can really feel like, oh, I can do that. I can think of five or six small things that I can do that, that really make me feel like I'm standing up and making a difference. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Milton, you had talked a little bit about it being a, a state of being more than you know a, a particular act. Are there is there more that you would want to add to that, hearing other people um, comment? What does it look like for, for someone to be an upstander? You know, I, I think for me it has a lot to do with questioning. I think civic agency comes from being able to ask questions that lead to opportunities to engage. And so for me, I think students who develop the ability to, to think critically about history and about themselves in the context of history, I think, is, is, is a really important big idea. I think too often students think about history as a sort of a static series of things that have happened rather than something that has lasting legacies and that we are ensconced within those legacies, whether we're aware of it or not. Uh, just to channel George Lipsitz again, um, he has a, a saying I've heard him sort of repeat several times, even if you're not interested in history, history is very interested in you. So helping students understand that they're not operating outside of the context of history, but rather within the context of it, not as uh, planktonic entities, but as, as, as actually as people who are creating history. Uh, as they move through life, helping them understand that the choices that they make can have uh, ramifications, both positive and negative, is about developing a civic identity. And so, you know, through the process of questioning, students should be able to, uh, over time, mitigate the negative uh, implications and ramifications, ramifications of their actions, uh, but also increase the positive. But part of making sure that that happens is understanding who one is within context because oftentimes something that is, uh, seems to be apparent and exciting for us may have negative consequences for others. So it's about holding tension with uh, the contradictions that history um, uh, provides us with. And I love that fun statement that history is interested in, in you. History is interested in me. I think that in a, in a quick way really summarizes the power of recognizing uh, that we do have agency in this world today. Andrew, as we come to you, I would love for you also to share a little bit about like what does upstanding look like within the Harry Potter Alliance? Yeah, well, uh, God, these answers, everybody just put it so well, and I really, just to uh, repeat what you said, Mary, I really think that, that what Milton said about history is interested in you is such an essential, boy, that's phenomenal. Um, I, with the Harry Potter Alliance, you know, for those uh, I oftentimes start any talk uh, asking people who has not who have not read who has not read Harry Potter and uh, or who has read Harry Potter and then I say for those who haven't just so you know Harry Potter happens to be a very popular book series and uh, you know it's an incredibly popular book series and uh, in 2005 when I looked at the online fan community I was amazed uh, completely blown away 
by the fact that the virtual uh, world of the Harry Potter fan fandom was the actual was like an actual community. It was like a physical location, but it was it was virtual, and fans were doing incredible things, uh, creating punk rock bands based off of Harry Potter, sports leagues based off of Harry Potter. Fan fiction, podcasts, starting conferences, businesses, so many amazing things. But one thing that was not taking place in that community in any kind of really robust way was a discussion of how to make the world a better place. And I sort of posed to the community, if Harry Potter were in our world, wouldn't he do more than simply talk about how awesome it is to be Harry Potter? Wouldn't he fight for justice in our world the way he fights for justice in his? Uh, in the in the books, um, Harry starts a student activist group called Dumbledore's Army, and Dumbledore's Army wakes the consolidated media and government up to uh, something that was the truth that they were ignoring, that was as dangerous as climate change or, or just as dangerous, and um, and they succeeded in doing that. So it so what we did was we began by tapping into the interests of where uh, this specific group of people. Uh, was in regarding the, the popular engagement that they were consuming and uh, remixing um, online. And then from that we built a Dumbledore's army for our world and what what came about in the last 10 years has been young people taking that online infrastructure where we sort of looked at the Harry Potter fandom and did campaigns on LGBTQ equality or uh, service and charity related things uh, we, where people have donated hundreds of thousands of books um, but then there's campaigns like um, uh, a campaign called Not in Harry's Name, which we recently succeeded in. It took over four years, uh, which really is a nice lesson in, uh, in understanding how difficult it is to do effective advocacy, but how rewarding it is to, do, to start it and, and, to, and to, ma to make it happen. What we looked at was the fact that the cocoa crop is corrupt, there's so much child slavery uh, coming out of the Ivory Coast where a lot of our chocolate comes from and we wanted to ensure that no Harry Potter chocolate was fair trade. Uh, excuse me, the no Harry Potter chocolate came from child slavery. Uh, and we used Harry Potter parallels. Hermione, uh, Harry's best friend, would flip out if she found out that Harry's name was used to pay for child kidnappers. Um, uh, chocolate in Harry Potter plays a very special role. It's a medicinal role and it would not have that medicine uh, role if it was coming to support child slavery. So after immense creative transmedia kind of campaigning that took place over the course of four years, online engagement, offline engagement, partnering with anti-slavery organizations, getting us out into the media, resistance from Warner Brothers, finally engagement with from Warner Brothers, uh, we were able to announce that Warner Brothers agreed that by the end of this year all Harry Potter chocolate will be Otz or Fairtrade certified. And this was young people getting to see um, for the first time that they actually made a real dent in child slavery and not just in terms of the sheer number of chocolate frogs that are sold in the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park in Orlando, but also in the fact that Harry Potter has a kind of moral resonance in the culture and it then has raised the bar, as it were, on chocolate. So that's one example of, of young people beginning to feel a sense of empathy for people they've never met based on the characters that they've met intimately in their heads and their hearts. It's a great example, and, I, and before we leave it, I want to I want to ask because this idea of perseverance is something that um, that I think we we sometimes struggle with as as teachers for students as well. That that we see students want to make a difference, but they want to 
do something and have it make a difference. There's this kind of sudden instant gratification. Um, and, and helping students recognize that sometimes it does take time and it takes effort and you need to stick with it. Um, we have some historical examples, but you just brought up a really beautiful contemporary one. Four years. Was that different people each year? How did you keep people engaged when you had kind of setbacks? Um, can you describe a little bit more how you how you helped young people develop that skill of perseverance? Well, yeah, and the initial idea, um, first of all, I, I, I like to say that the that for any to, to succeed in any purpose, you need the three Ps of uh, patience, persistence, and pizzazz. Unfortunately, a lot of educators and activists lack that last one of pizzazz, um, uh, and some lack that persistence. And the students can lack persistence and patience, but they love the pizzazz element. We need to bring them all together. Uh, it was a young person who came to me in 2008, uh, so it was really six years. The campaign officially launched in, uh, over a four-year period, uh, but we would talk about it in live webcasts. We'd ask our members, what do you think about this? Um, we got people engaged and excited about it, but ultimately it was incredibly frustrating for everyone. I mean, there was there were so many setbacks. And the solution to that, I would say, is that we were not only working on that campaign. We took a lot of breaks from that campaign. We kept sticking to it and returning and saying, "What now we have to return to not in Harry's name, this thorn in our side that we are never going to pick out. We are going to continue to say we're going to succeed and we're going to do it. Um, and we're going to, we're just not ever going to give up, but uh, uh, the, 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 the sort of reality of what we were pushing though was intermingled in the Not in Harry's Name campaign was campaigns on body image to engage people on, on their own personal issues, was uh, campaigns on economic inequality, looking at the Hunger Games, so by constantly creating a saturation of ways to engage in a variety of things, as well as allowing our chapters to do whatever they want to better their community, it keeps the system of engagement up, and yet the campaign of Not in Harry's Name created this through line of, we're not done, we're going to keep going because of this, remember this? So it's, it's, it's playing with, with two hands instead of with one, or maybe eight tentacles, if you will, instead of with, uh, with just one. It seems like that also is, is giving the opportunity for successes in some areas even when they've had a setback in one and that that success could help build that momentum. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if, if we're in no way a religion, but, but and I, and I don't, it's a very dangerous territory to go into, but when you look at activism that's done out of a church or a synagogue or a mosque or something like that, it's not like that specific thing that that group is doing uh, is, is the only thing they do. They, they engage in rites of passage, they engage in community-oriented things. I think that thriving communities should remember that there's not one thing that you do. When you have humans that are engaged in a, in a space that you've created, you should make it a human space. And a human space is holistic in nature. And the real way to succeed is to not uh, just stick to one goal, um, uh, although that's important in certain cases, um, but sometimes that can make things atrophy. So to, so, so to continue pulling as much as you can from everything and providing as many possibilities um, continues that necessary engagement for a four-year campaign. That's fabulous. Um, I want to turn now to John, who uh, teaches at Animo Jackie Robinson down here. Um, this idea of patience, persistence, and pizzazz, I think I've seen that in your students over the last few years as we've seen what has come from the class that you now teach. And I would love for you to share a little bit more about what that looks like and how you, over the course of a year, 
really capping off four years at the school are building student up standards before they graduate from your school. Hi. Um, you know, again, I think my course is, like you said, like this kind of accumulation of, of four years here at AGR. Um, and I think with, um, you know, our principal, uh, Kristen Boteo, she does a very uh, good job at really putting facing history at the forefront and everything, right? This is the core of who we are. This is the core of our school and how we even go about really teaching our courses. Um, you know, and the staff is on board with her. So the staff is on board and just the way we approach these courses, uh, you know, whether it's English, science, math, uh, ethnic studies, history, social studies, um, it's, it's from that lens. Um, and with that, I think even more importantly, um, we've, we've created this culture at our school beyond my class that by, you know, when we leave AJR, when these students leave AJR, they are agents of change. They acknowledge that they have that power. Um, and you know, with that, we've you know we have a, we've created spaces for them. They've created spaces for themselves to really um, empower themselves in. And and you know, we have a very active uh, community service group on campus uh, that organizes everything from pennies for patients to blood drives to uh, you know book donations. Um, they volunteer with the Midnight Mission every year. Um, we've had we've created a house of representatives, and this is um, you know this is a student body group of comprised of students from all the advisory classes and you know in that in that it's just completely student driven and they, they discuss issues of concern um, amongst the entire student population uh, last year you know with the leader of the house of reps and a few other students they uh, you know they they um, organized a student walkout uh, you know this, uh, you know with what's happening with police brutality and uh, Ezel Ford and you know that was completely student run um, one of our students uh, Cynthia Perez who is now attending uh, San Francisco State. So, you know, there's a handful of things that are going on outside the classroom as well. Um, and, you know, my class particularly, like I said, focuses on this idea of community power and resistance. Um, and it's really looking at, um, again, you know, a variety of communities from um, LGBT community to the African American community to the Chicano community um, and, and from women and men and looking at this idea of power and power dynamics between these groups. And you know what I found useful is always structuring these my, my class in in a way that we're not just talking about these these issues, but we're also problem solving, right? We're creating solutions. How do we solve these issues? How do we create uh, a more just world? How do we create you know equity in this um, on a larger scale? Um, so with my you know with my class, the, it culminates in the the SAP projects, and I'm not sure if you want me to talk about that now, Mary, or a little bit later. I think it could be useful because as you're talking about your students, I think one of the things that has really struck me is how um, the students have had the opportunity to really think about what's happening in their community, to learn more, and then to choose something that really resonates with them. Um, and I know a few years ago it was it was the don't drop the eye bomb was one of it yeah. with the students who had heard the word illegal used towards mm -hmm. them, towards their family, towards friends, and said, you know what, that's offensive, and we want to do something about that. Um, and I, so I think, you know, if, yes, if you want to talk a little bit about the um, SAP is Student Action Projects, right? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as a graduation requirement for, my, uh, for our school, um, all seniors have to participate in what's called a so uh, Senior Social Action Project. Um, and with that, they, they pick a topic of interest, uh, they research it further, um, and the big part of it is they develop and actually carry out an action plan uh, to address the, the, their issue. 
Uh, so in the past, um, like Mary said, we've had you know uh, topics on immigration and immigration reform and just the language that's used around that topic. Uh, last year, we had a very good, uh, very, you know, really solid presentation on um, sweatshop labor and maquiladoras. Uh, we had a group of students who actually went to uh, these factories. Uh, they asked questions to the managers. They they really looked at firsthand what are the conditions look like there. Um, in the end, they were able to fundraise or first educate students about this uh, this issue. Uh, they performed a you know a skit during our lunchtime and at the International Women's Day uh, rally in downtown, um, you know, illustrating what these working conditions look like. Um, in the end, they actually were able to fundraise money uh, to provide uh, these men and women in these factories with uh, toilet paper, a first aid kit. Uh, water jug that would, they, they could use because um, you know they came to the realization that these are the conditions that these people are in and you know that, again that's all student based um, I guide them they have a mentor that guides them but for the most part it's it's all really them um, pushing that uh, yeah. and I think for people who may not know right, Anima Jackie Robinson is just on the kind of south edge of downtown yeah. so looking at these factories, this is right down the street. Um, yeah. You mentioned the Midnight Mission earlier and the, the growing issues around homelessness, the growing population mm -hmm. of the homeless in downtown LA um, makes this very relevant and very resonant with your students, I imagine, because they're right here and they're seeing it. Yeah, and you know, a, a lot of our students, they, they know someone, right? They know someone who has been homeless or who is homeless. They know someone uh, who works in a uh, sweatshop or a fac you know, in a factory. They see their mothers and fathers take home to work sometimes. So they are very connected to these projects that they, they do. Yeah. And uh, one thing, I, one other thing I'll mention for people who may be thinking about this, all, you know, like it's, it is fa fabulous. John has a has a wonderful class and curriculum where they really dive in. Um, he mentioned in passing the role of mentors, and one of the things I think has always impressed me at this school is that every adult on campus participates in these projects as a mentor to you know a few students. And so when we think about what a school faculty and a school community can do together. I mean, it's truly amazing that the whole school embodies a lot of this uh, this activism and this engagement through the work they're doing with their students. So with that, I want to turn up north. Um, Aaron and Milton mentioned this great group that they have been working with. And Aaron, I'll uh, start off with you if you could share more about that. Sure. So um, what I think is really interesting that both Andrew and John talked about was this idea of creating space. So um, Andrew created space virtually, and um, John creates space in his classroom for students to start really engaging in hard conversations. And what Trevor Milton and I started thinking about was, so students know on their campus where those safe places are, or um, they're used to doing that on campus because that's the school culture. But we started to think bigger. When students leave our campus, what do they do? Because now things are a little bit countercultural. To be a justice advocate or an activist or an upstander, that's not really the norm. It's it's a little bit countercultural. So we started talking about um, creating a network of student leaders. So the Bay Area schools facing history came together, and teachers decided that we would all create student leadership groups on our campus. 
And the idea was that we would develop their student leaders, but we would also help them start to connect with other student leaders who are like-minded, who are passionate, and who could work together because we recognized that we as teachers were really benefiting from networking with each other. Our practices were better. We just we were better practitioners. And what, what would happen if students were given that space to see that there's other people that are, are interested? And what the real value, I think, of our network is that our schools are really different. So I'm at an all-girls Catholic school in downtown San Jose. Trevor's at a, um, or was at a school that was in downtown Oakland um, with a very different racial and ethnic demographic. Um, we have a school in, in Hayward. Um, we have a we have a school from San Francisco, so there's different schools, and all our students are so different. And when they first came together, they were a little timid, but over a year, they had created a community that felt safe and felt respected. Most importantly, felt empowered, um, and they were they were all on the same page, um, even though they were so different. Thank you, Milton. Do you want to add to that a little bit? What have, what has this team done during the course of this year? So we haven't done much yet this year, but we're getting ready to fire some things off. Uh, all of the teachers will come together on the first, and we'll start our, our plotting and scheming. But I think, you know, to go back to some of the things that Aaron said, I think one of the things for us is that the diversity of our region and the diversity of our student population schools is really an asset. We've been really cognizant about the need uh, to get students to each other's schools, and I think, you know, part of this deals with the legacies of, of our own hard history and that we oftentimes allocate resources as a society based on uh, how we design, or we define, or historically have defined the relative worth of communities. So, you know, connecting back to the issues that John is dealing with in his community, we're dealing with the legacies of history. And I think one of the fascinating things is helping our students sort of wrap their head around a set of big ideas. And then it gets catalyzed by seeing the different opportunities, uh, the different opportunity zones in which they exist. And I think as a function of that, it makes the sort of cognitive aspects of learning more effectively available becomes something very real. And I think the synergy of them engaging together and the power of shared movement I think has been one of the really exciting things. Uh, we had an opportunity to bring them together at their teach-in last year with a number of uh, civil rights uh, veterans, uh, queer activists and activists who worked around issues of Japanese internment. And students had prepared to do a variety of different workshops. I wish I had the uh, the flyer with me. Maybe Erin can sort of, I don't know if she has access to it, but uh, they heard from those activists and, and, and historical figures, and those historical figures joined them in the workshops. And so to see students going back and forth with people like Phil Hutchings or Stan Yogi, people who are these historical figures, was powerful. And I think it was actually as powerful for those historical figures as it was for them, helping understand that there is continuity of movement, uh, that they're, you know, that not everybody is checked out and that some are leaning into the exchanges. And I think we're super excited uh, for what's going to happen this year. Among the issues that I think a lot of people are contending with the barrier is um, regional change. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the technology juggernaut in the Bay is huge, uh, but there's also great asymmetry and wealth creation, and as a function of that, we have a lot of dislocation taking place. And one of the things that happens with dislocation oftentimes in the service of progress is that the history of various different communities gets paid over, paved over, and built over. And so thinking about history, uh, the reclamation or the conservation of some of the history uh, in the communities and being able to actually in some cases leverage uh, technology as a way of sort of finding ways to GPS, you know, 
uh, pen drop and locate sites and then to curate sites. Uh, we can imagine um, interdisciplinary projects in which students are thinking about what does it mean to curate a memorial or a monument? How do you design it? Who is your audience? How do you get it passed? How do you go uh, to the city councils? And what happens if they're not down with it? How do you go guerrilla uh, necessarily? It's not necessary that we're suggesting that they do that, but I think um, oftentimes people who we lionize as activists today were people who were on the margins of society uh, in the past, and that's no less true today. So, um, you know, what issues have value, what issues get traction oftentimes has to do with, again, legacies of uh, how membership is defined. But I, I'm super excited, and I think, you know, when you look at uh, students who have a sense of their own capability and possibility before they even go off to university, for me, I, I'm, I'm super, super stoked. I mean, I think we need to cultivate uh, a cadre of leadership that's reflective of the population of California, and I think creating uh, structures uh, like what we've created here, what John and his colleagues are doing down at um, Animal Jackie Robinson, are really about um, tending to the fragility of democracy. Representation is important, so cultivating uh, cadres of people who feel empowered, who actually are able to ask the hard questions, and feel uh, efficacious enough to take bold actions and remain mindful of the consequences and benefits of the choices that they're making. I think um, that's what makes democracy strong. We're excited. Thank you. I know we're going to come back to some more of those themes, but I want to hear from Emily a little bit as well, because um, she's been working on one particular project among many uh, yeah. that I want her to share with you. Um, I think it connects beautifully to something that Milton said about getting students to each other's schools. So one of the projects that we work on here in Los Angeles is a partnership between one of our Jewish day schools, Sinai Akiba Academy, and um, New Horizons School in Pasadena, which is a Muslim day school. And so they have, this is the, I think the fifth year of their, um, of their program. We've been lucky enough to be involved and it's really this idea of, you know, getting them to sit down with one another. And so it's sort of getting them out of this environment of whatever preconceived ideas they might have, whatever they may have heard or not heard outside and then come together and really find the commonalities to so celebrate what's unique to their communities but find those commonalities and so they spend one day at the Jewish day school and another day at the um, at the Muslim school and they spend the day together studying and learning um, participating in prayer with uh, that, that's led by the respective schools and really looking at um, some important topics. So this past year the topic was what does it mean to be um, an American teenage Jew or an American teenage Muslim and this idea of you know what are the similar issues that they navigate, what are some of the obstacles that they have and um, what are some of the positives that come with those sort of pieces of their identity. So it's been a really amazing experience to see the students build relationships with one another and continue those relationships beyond those two days every year, which is really what we hope will happen. And also creating some conversation with parents because, you know, there are some really strong responses coming from parents at both schools about this um, exchange program happening. So it's a huge testament to the teachers who have made this program happen, created this program. Um, and it's, it's also struck me in hearing um, the student voices, something that reminds me of what Andrew talked about, of the space for multiple engagements. So yeah. you have students who develop friendships here as well as looking at some really tough issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I think it, foundationally it is about that personal connection. So when people are able to sit down and say, 
okay, you're a person, I'm a person, let's connect, let's talk about some of the small things that we have in common that are really human and basic, and then expand it out to sort of delving into these um, more challenging issues. And I think that speaks to that idea that Facing History often talks about of creating a safe and reflective space. So once students feel safe, and once they connect on a bunch of different levels, then you can really dive deeply into some of those more challenging, maybe scary um, yeah. questions. Yeah, which I think for, for these two groups, part of that, the challenging is times where they've really felt targeted, they've right. been targeted, right. um, and being able to challenge the um, that discrimination and the stereotypes in American society towards both of their groups. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's spot on. So we did get a question um, from some of the viewers that I want to come back to, and it's a question around um, privilege, really. Yeah. And I'm going to read the question, and then um, I think Erin uh, was going to start us off on it. Um, but the question is, what are some strategies for encouraging students who might come from more privileged backgrounds to be upstanders? That is, students who have not seen these issues in the everyday lives. So we talked about with John, you know, students who may know somebody who's homeless, may live right next to where um, some of these factories are. Um, but this person is asking, how do we create a culture of empathy and action mm -hmm. for students who have come from a more privileged background? Erin, go ahead and start us off. So I... My school population is diverse socioeconomically, so we have students who are on financial aid, um, and we also have students who are very privileged. And so I think I want to just talk about briefly macro versus micro level ways to do this. So the macro level is our school culture really is one that values social justice. So we have a program called Education for Justice and Leadership, and it, it the both co-curricular and curricular program supports that so students can go on immersion trips but students are also learning in the classroom about social justice to think academically about it but really I think one of the best ways is by allowing students to know personal stories as soon as the individuals are able to connect with each other and people know each other as people it's hard to ignore issues or it's hard to label problems with with um, sort of what the media labels as, what, why, do, why are people poor? Why are um, certain groups disadvantaged? And so they have to really think about it as real people, human dignity, um, and, you, and you start to care. I think you start to empathize because the person that has a locker next to you um, now is going through issues that you thought was only part of a political debate. So I think the more you can connect diverse groups together, and create a, a safe space for them to start knowing each other and caring about each other, then then you can't get away from social justice because it's your neighbor or your friend or the or the person that's in your class. Great. Milton? You know, I think for me it's also about the history that students have access to and the, and the sets of ideas that shape the questions that they ask. You know, I, I know that um, sort of in the in some of the earlier stuff you'd mentioned sort of the idea of race and membership it's actually uh, as I think about a lot of the work that we do a lot of it's tied very directly to a resource tied race and membership in American history but it's really about understanding the power of eugenics uh, you know looking at the scientific reification of race is really at the epicenter of the modern society and how we assign value and meaning to people has implications differently I think one of the challenges we face as a society and in, in our efforts to address our own history is that sometimes the ways in which we approach it are maladaptive and so we talk around the history and we lean into frames that while might appear to be uh, democratically generative can be sort of stultifying 
you know, I think about this idea of, of one of the downsides of sort of the collision of multiculturalism and colorblindness is this idea that everybody has an identity, that everybody's identity is the same. And that really denies the historical reality of the various different groups within our society. And so rather than thinking about some people live in a community because they simply worked harder, we can look at the history of how our own government allocated resources differently, creating opportunity zones for some and others bereft of opportunity. Um, having said that, I think any sort of isolation, I don't care whether you're in an underserved community or in a highly resourced community, uh, isolation in and in of itself is a sort of poverty. Right, people um, can become isolated and disempowered by virtue of what they become uncomfortable with uh, that exists outside their sphere. And so, I think there's a great deal of intentionality, you know, for us in our region around putting students together so that those walls and those seemingly impenetrable silos of life are, are actually distractions from the reality. Um, you know, democracy is a shared endeavor. I mean, like it or not, living where you are, we 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 are in this together. And so, helping students sort of understand that. But also giving them the power to question. I think that having an understanding of the power of those ideas, uh, how inequity is structured, can be as liberating for those students who are in uh, highly resourced communities as it can be empowering for those students who are in under-resourced communities. Um, it provides them an opportunity to find their best selves and to have their values aligned with their actions rather than have their perceptions of the world drive their actions, which can lead to the asymmetry. Yeah. Right? Now, agency is different. If you have access to resources, you may be able to push some things uh, in a different way. Having said that, um, I think the sort of conjuring that happens in communities that are underserved is a huge asset that we oftentimes under, undervalue. We don't recognize that the idea of making the most out of having little and finding, uh, having little and finding creative ways to engage in problem solving is a huge asset. Um, uh, so we try to sort of get, get a mashup, put people together in the room, you know, break down those barriers and give them opportunities to engage yeah. on some shared, uh, shared um, endeavors. Yeah, and I'm hearing within your response, um, kind of bringing together a couple things. One of this idea of the importance of coming together and evaluating what each person in each community is bringing to it. Um, but I also want to highlight something that you said that that uh, that draws back to the previous webinars for those who didn't go on it, because you talked about the power of looking at a case study. Um, and race and membership in American history is a great one that Facing History has. But I think that we we saw that deepening with the other conversations too, that that power of looking at a case study of starting to recognize the individual and each of the people involved can be very powerful for students to create a better, a, a greater sense of empathy, um, as well as seeing different models, what you just touched on, of, of that people choose to act based on where they are from and their own values and what opportunities are available to them, and so seeing multiple models can be helpful. Emily, your thoughts? Just a couple of things. I mean, uh, what Aaron and Milton said both really resonated with me, but especially this idea that oftentimes when we think about, Milton, you call it high-resource schools, right? That was the, the verbiage, which I really like. This idea that um, those communities or those schools are homogenous when, when in actuality they're very diverse. The student body is extremely diverse. And so part of it is doing away with this idea that all of our students and all of these classes in these high-resource schools are the same. They're not. I mean, there's a huge discrepancy in socioeconomic background. There's a huge, you know, difference in life experience. And so I think it's it's thinking about it from that. And also something that Aaron said, um, talking about this idea of personalizing stories. So there's a, a quote I've been thinking about a lot uh, that 
Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote about in a letter where he was encouraging the Jewish community to get more actively involved in the civil rights movement. Um, and uh, he said, you know, the Torah tells us, the Bible tells us, love thy neighbor as thyself, so we make it impossible for them to be our neighbor. So this idea of if we continue to just put up walls and assume it's somebody else's problem in somebody else's neighborhood, so it's really about helping our students see, you know, Milton talked about this idea of isolation being a form of poverty, that when we can remove that isolation and help our students see that they're, they're part of a, a larger global community or part of the Los Angeles community, and something that I found really useful is, you know, if, if students say, oh, I really care about homelessness or I really care about, you know, equity in school systems, saying, well, then, you know, if you live in Los Angeles, what does the homeless problem look like in Los Angeles? As opposed to tossing a couple of cans in a bin for a food drive, which is important, I'm not negating that, but what does homelessness look like in your community? Have you spoken to somebody who's homeless? Have you gone and, and made that personal connection like Aaron was talking about? So I think it's to sort of summarize, you know, acknowledging the unique diversity that exists in, in these communities and then helping make them feel a part of that either city community or global community and saying, well, what are these issues look like? What do they look like specific to the community in which I live? And how can I get involved on a personal level in making change? Because you can't assume you know what the problem is until you ask. So I think those are some things that we've seen in some of the day schools that I've been working in that have been really effective in beginning that conversation and beginning that process. Thank you. Andrew, your thoughts on seeing this this question? Yeah, um, <clears throat> uh, too many. Going to try to rapid fire answer. Um, to, in terms of uh, neighborhoods and, you know, uh, that's an amazing quote from uh, uh, about um, but keeping people from being your neighbor. Um, in, in the la I, I think required reading for all students, but it's not, uh, should be Martin Luther King's last book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, specifically the last chapter where he talks about how the game has changed. It may as well have been written in 2015. It feels more relevant now than it was when he wrote it in the late 60s about how we're all neighbors now. And there, it is unavoidable, which is why I think there is a power in the virtual space and how there's an obligation uh, that the U.S. has to creating broadband access uh, for everyone, but also there is an obligation for educators for us all to really embrace that and to co-organize together, um, uh, as well as the obligation for those organizing in the virtual space to then bring it down into the concrete uh, local community. Uh, within the Harry Potter Alliance, we, we have over 270 chapters in 30 countries, and, it, and, and our chapters are really the ones that do the most amazing work, not what happens online. But the online stuff facilitates a lot of that. Uh, but to, to just, and, and also to make a quick observation um, that I think is going off of Milton's point, um, uh, and this is not taking the question head on yet, but I'm going to in a second, is um, we should not, we should remember, you know, I, I go to a lot of these civic engagement uh, meetings and people are saying, well, how do we get young people engaged? And I'm like, do, do you not see that they are? <laughs> Uh, they already are. They're just not engaged, maybe in the way that you that makes you feel safe. But they're doing it. Uh, Black Lives Matter is real, and it is changing the national conversation in a historic way. So whether or not you feel safe about that, your your question is wrong. I think you should be asking why you weren't able to see that, and start asking where you can see that. Um, but to sort of uh, bring it in to this this question around empathy. 
Um, one of the chief things about the Harry Potter alliance that I, I like to say is that what we've proven is an argument that fantasy is not an escape from our world, but an invitation to go deeper into it. And when we look at the issues that we care about in our stories, um, uh, our, our, our popular fiction stories, we can draw parallels to our personal lives. Um, so, a couple of quick, so a couple of quick examples on that. Uh, our original chapters director uh, was doing Teach for America and is white in a predominantly African-American classroom in St. Louis. And she ended up uh, uh, doing a unit on uh, slavery in the U.S. and then connected that to the Harry Potter Alliance campaign around child slavery. And the students were inflamed and started getting engaged. The idea that slavery would exist now uh, really resonated with them and their own cultural history in a way that's amazing. And I want to do a shout out to a specific issue that's not getting much attention at all, which is uh, as much as I love the guy, uh, President Obama has just endorsed slavery in Malaysia through the Trafficking in Persons Report, which he got the State Department to inflate the grade of Malaysia so that it could be worthy of, uh, of uh, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And um, uh, Malaysia's uh, human rights grade, is, human rights is dismal, and it got pushed through uh, otherwise excellent uh, experts. And, um, and we should be talking about the fact that, that a, uh, a grave was just found of, uh, of butchered migrant workers. Malaysia's done nothing meaningful and it got its, its grade inflated, whereas Cambodia, which has actually made huge changes, has not, and how that systemically is a huge problem. Um, but then to continue on this point about the actual question, um, the Hunger Games campaign that we've run has uh, said that, you know, we, we've said that um, the, number, the first rule of classism in America is don't talk about classism, and we're going to break that rule with hashtag MyHungerGames. Come out to the end of October, we're going to be launching MyHungerGames.org where people are sharing their Hunger Games stories. And what was shocking for us, and I think uh, the whole membership, was how many people of, who seem to be of privilege, um, in fact, are not when it comes to economics. And the stories that they began to tell uh, that, are, that were very vulnerable, and we, we also were working with McDonald's workers in Fight for 15 at the same time, it was tremendous to watch stories like, my dad had to walk to work every day because he had to choose between his gas money and my lunch money, hashtag my Hunger Games. And that came from one of our members who we otherwise would have thought of as privileged. And for, for, for young people who, were, who are economically privileged, they were having discussions around, well, what does that mean for me? Um, but what that means for, for them is that, you know, we're not in the oppression Olympics. Everyone should know what oppression feels like in some way. Everyone has been bullied. So in terms of discussing body image, and how it feels to be insecure around your body, and then relating that to a larger system of oppression that oppresses people based on other forms of identity besides body. But I'd say the most intimate experience we've had with it was a really shocking and horrible experience where uh, a lot of uh, adult men uh, in the fan community and beyond the Harry Potter fan community, I should add, this is the YouTube fan community of uh, musicians, were using, um, were using their clout as, as uh, famous YouTube musicians uh, to uh, to prey on young women, and uh, there were instances of rape. There were instances of of, uh, of non-consensual uh, advances that were really horrible, and it all came out at once. Um, and the beautiful thing that happened in the community is that uh, the the men in these situations were pushed out, regardless of their popularity. Whereas there was not that much victim shaming. Uh, there may have been some tangential, but 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 for the most part. It was about putting the victims first, allowing them to be survivors and vict victors of the experience. And um, 
uh, a young woman said that not enough was being done, and one of the biggest names in the community uh, responded to that and brought her into a conversation, and now there's a, a nonprofit called Uplift, which is working to create spaces online uh, to prevent sexual harassment. So this was a deep discussion there, but then that ended up leading into a discussion around gender politics and, and what it is to be a woman walking into a room with your employee who's a man and, the, and everyone keeps looking to the man um, for, for uh, what they have to say, whereas the woman is being ignored. So oppression happens in so many different kinds of ways and the idea of solidarity and intersectionality. So solidarity through an intersection of issues to, to face oppression, to admit that it exists, and, and to get beyond it um, has been really central here and I think that no matter where you are economically or racially or gender-wise uh, or sexual orientation-wise or any of the other forms of oppression we have, you can find where the pain and suffering is in you and where your heartbreak has been and allow your heart to essentially break open. Uh, there are ways to do it and it's not an easy thing and we as an organization are struggling to do it and are, are talking very loudly and consciously about, about wrestling with that uh, very topic right now. Thank you, Andrew, and it does really kind of highlight the importance of you know, leading with our heart in many ways. Um, I know we're going to lose John in just a minute because his students will come in to his classroom and he'll be you know, focused on them, um, so I do want to make sure that I thank John for joining us before he leaves. Um, I also want us to, to go just, we have just a couple minutes left, so very briefly, um, this idea of, of being an upstander today, where we have digital and physical spaces, you all have alluded to some of the different things. So the, the digital gives us ways to learn about each other. It gives us ways to, to find out what's happening in the world in a much different way. It can give us ways to spread news. Are, are there other ways that, that advance, advances in technology have shaped or reshaped the opportunities for students to be upstanders? Or has it changed what upstanding looks like? Um, and Milton, I, I think you had a few words you wanted to say on this, so I'll turn to you first, and then if there's time, we'll hear from others. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, there there is a, a certain asymmetry in access that we're still dealing with, even here uh, in, in Silicon Valley. So I think we have to be honest about that, and I think we have to look at this sort of this massive sort of moment of wealth creation as having consequences that are not always positive. Having said that, I do think that technology does provide us with tools and I think the tools that are most important to me are access to information and so we can, um, people can move outside of their opportunity zones and access information that allows them to um, be part of the conversation. I think they can also catalyze conversations. I, I think cell phones and particularly the, the, the ability to capture videos democratize uh, the ability to, to make news. And so stories that would have historically not been in the news press are now in there repeatedly. People are forced to have to sort of to, to reckon with uh, the experience of police violence is, is epidemic in our society and, and, and it calls us to a different conversation. But I think it also gives people an opportunity to hold um, uh, elected officials accountable. Uh, we participated in something called Project EDA and just really briefly it was uh, educating for democracy in the digital age and we did that in collaboration with Oakland Unified School District and Mills and so a number of teachers were innovating around um, technology in the classroom. One lesson specifically had to be uh, tied to technology, but it could it could be more than that. 
So one of the uh, apps that a student group created was this digital pin drop technology where students would be able to identify public works issues in their community, uh, issues that hadn't been attended to. And so they could, by virtue of the app, take a picture, pin drop it with the GPS location, and then send it to the public's work, public works department. And then they showed up at a, at a public works meeting. Uh, at the end of the semester and gave them a report card and, and interesting enough the Republic the Public Works got a D because in their community they were not showing up and that led to a really interesting interaction I think one of the public officials said I haven't had a D since high school and so but it led to a good conversation and and which you know these students who probably felt subject to the Public Works are now in conversation with them so it moves you know so it, it allows people to participate in some of the conversations that hadn't been able to before, but but I think it's important to recognize it's a tool. It's a tool that cuts both ways, and I think um, I'm struck that in in a district in which, in some cases, 60% of the student uh, seniors still aren't uh, literate at at least a grade level. Um, that we might be making huge investments in technology when some of the investments that might be important are skilled teachers who can help them access language. So it's a tension that we have to hold, but I think it's also important to take advantage of the opportunities that technology provides us. Thanks, and it's probably a good summary for us. So you know, nothing nothing quite replaces the power of the conversations that can happen in those skills. Um, but technology, you can see, I love that app. I think that's a great way to you know to show some of the new things and and the the connections that it can create, the empathy that Andrew talked about that can come when you genuinely have a community that lives online in an online space and what that can mean for your own growth as a person and as a community and as individual and group upstanders. So with that, if we're coming to the end, we came very quickly to the end of our hour. Um, so I want to thank everybody for just a really fabulous conversation around this. Um, I know I want to actually go back and listen to it again myself because it was just some really great ideas and, and phenomenal work happening at each school and each group. So, um, so it was really wonderful to hear all of those. Um, there will be a full recording. I mentioned going back and listening to it again. Um, the, the full recording of this webinar will immediately be available on Connected Learning TV. Um, it will also be reposted on the Facing History blog, Learn, Teach, Share. And in both cases, it will have curated content that goes with it. So some of the links that, um, that explain different things that we mentioned um, that you can explore further the different resources and projects. Um, this does wrap up our fourth and final webinar with Connected Learning TV this month, but it doesn't have to wrap up the conversation. You can continue to have conversations with the uh, hashtags Upstander and with the hashtag Connected Learning. And if you did find this conversation helpful, we hope that you will share it with your communities on social media. Um, and you can also subscribe at Connected Learning TV to get their email updates and find out about additional events. Um, you can do that at connectedlearning.tv. And thank you again to all of the panelists and to everybody who joined in today in the conversation. Um, it was really wonderful and we have appreciated a great month with Connected Learning TV around creating, facilitating, supporting student upstanders in today's world. Thank you.